Can you kindly open your Bibles to Philemon? We're in the second half of this epistle and really maybe even further than that. And so this morning I'd like to go back there as we consider what Paul writes to this believer in the church at Colossae. Really was a a pillar of the faith. He was remarkable in the way he refreshed the saints. And so Paul writes to him in this epistle in Philemon. And I'm going to read from verse 17 all the way through to the end. I know that your bulletin may say till 22, but I'm reading all the way through to the end this morning as we consider Philemon. Starting at verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him. That is Paul speaking to Philemon about receiving Onesimus. Receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand and I will repay it. To say nothing of what, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the time, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Verse 23 Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again this morning for your grace to us. And we know, Lord, that all that we enjoy, all that we have received in our lives, and all that we've become part of, has become part of our lives because of your grace to us. You have been a gracious, loving God. We know that we... We haven't deserved your mercy. We didn't merit your grace. And really, you have been good to us in a way which we don't fully comprehend. But we thank you for loving us, for drawing us to yourself, and for making us your own. We pray this morning, Father, as we open your word, uh, as we read concerning the writings of Paul to our brother Philemon, that we may indeed learn from what transpired between them. We pray that what we do read this morning may not just remain an exercise in our minds, but may become seen in our lives as we walk before you. We pray for your grace to us this morning as we wait upon you in the Savior's name and for his sake alone. Amen. I've been preaching in the last few months now, it's not as long as it sounds to those who are visiting. I only get one week a month, so it's really the last few weeks. But uh, it's been taking a while to get to this short epistle, which many try and preach in one uh, go. And we've considered uh, verse 8 to 14 as a loving appeal of Paul to Philemon. We've considered verse 15 and 16 in the last sermon as a lifelong association established because of the work of Christ in the life of Onesimus. And I'm going to go back to this morning very, very briefly. And um, the last section, which really covers the whole rest of the scripture of this epistle, is a title I've changed from the last month. I renamed it A Leveled Alliance. I'm trying to keep this alliteration going, a loving appeal, a lifelong association, and then a leveled alliance, simply latching on to the fact that because of the work of the gospel in the life of Onesimus, he was raised uh, through Christ and in Christ, from his level as a mere slave and is brought on the same footing with with Philemon as a brother. So Onesimus becomes Philemon's brother in Christ. And so that alliance is leveled out. The playing field is made level because of the work of Christ in the life of a slave. And so master and slave, while they may remain master and slave, and we'll see whether that happens or not, uh, in Christ they are one. And the level field is leveled, and so this leveled alliance uh, predominates the balance of this epistle uh, from verse 15 all the way to the end. 
As a way of introduction, I'm going to read something from um, uh, a quotation, a quotation from a book written by a John MacArthur, and the title of that book is Slave. And so as my introduction, I'm going to read to you uh, something he wrote as we prepare our hearts to see what God says to us this morning from Philemon. He writes, and I quote, In addition to the name Christian, the Bible uses a host of other terms to identify the followers of Jesus Christ. Scripture describes us as aliens and strangers, citizens of heaven and lights of the world. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, members of his body, sheep in his flock, (laughs) ambassadors in his service, and friends around his table. We are called to compete like athletes, to fight like soldiers, to abide like branches in a vine, and even to desire his word as newborn babes long for milk. All of these descriptions, each in its own way, help us understand what it means to be a Christian. Yet the Bible uses one metaphor more frequently than any other. It is a word picture you might not expect, but it is absolutely critical for understanding what it means to follow Jesus. It is the image of a slave. Time and time again, throughout the pages of Scripture, believers are referred to as slaves of God and slaves of Christ. In fact, whereas the outside world called them Christians, the earliest believers repeatedly referred to themselves in the New Testament as the Lord's slaves. For them, the two ideas, that of Christian and slave, were synonymous. To be a Christian was to be a slave of Christ. Close quotes. To pick up the connection of where we're going this morning, I want to quickly revert back to verses 15 and 16 because it does provide the, the entrance into verse 17, which says, so if you consider, and it then leads into that thought that Paul has there. And in verse 16 and 15 and 16, we were reminded that while Paul is imprisoned in Rome, Onesimus runs away from his master's house in Colossae and finds himself in the company of the apostle who is in prison, chained to a Roman soldier in his, in, 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 in his house where he's imprisoned, uh, waiting to go on trial. And Onesimus ends up in Rome and finds Paul, who preaches the gospel to Onesimus, who is saved and radically changed. So much so that uh, whereas once he was considered to be useless, he now uh, becomes a man that can bear, bear his own name proudly, which means useful. And so he becomes this, this changed person, radically changed by the gospel. The separation of Onesimus from his master is temporal. In fact, Paul says in verse 15, you are part just for a while. So that was never intention of being a long party. Maybe in Onesimus' mind, he wasn't sure about closure to that departure. But the Apostle Paul uh, does intend to send him back to his master. And so we see the sovereign Lord has caused Onesimus to leave the home of a Christian master where undoubtedly he had heard the gospel uh, spoken about and maybe even witnessed it being lived out. Uh, and this Christian master had a house in which was the Colossian church and Onesimus possibly heard the gospel and saw it lived out amongst the saints in that very home which housed the Colossian church. And so Onesimus, under the guidance of the sovereign Lord, runs away from home, and 2,000 kilometers later, in the city of Rome, while on the run, he comes to salvation. God removes him from the place where the gospel was being preached, lived, and practiced, takes him totally away from his, from his friends, family, and uh, associates. 2,000 kilometers later in Rome, how he got there was an arduous journey, and there he comes to meet the Apostle Paul, and under the Apostle Paul's uh, 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 mentoring and preaching and teaching, he comes to salvation. And Paul expresses this running away and coming to salvation by saying in verses 16, 15 and 16, for this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever as a beloved brother. Paul sends Onesimus back. The runaway must return. He's got business to settle. He's got accounts to settle. And he's got to go back to his master. If he remains a runaway slave, he'll be exposed to greater danger. And so he is compelled to go back 
And the Apostle Paul ensures that. Onesimus left as a useless slave, returns as a dear brother. And he's become precious to Paul, but more so precious to Philemon, who now has someone who is a brother to him, not only in real life, but also in the Lord. And so Paul says he has become this forever. There's an aspect of eternality around the new relationship. This alliance has now been formed, not by their choice, but purely because they both belong to Christ. It's an eternal alliance. Alliance on a level footing because we are all the same before the Lord. This morning I really haven't got an outline. Um, you'll see why very shortly. My, I'm going to focus, as I have now, on the epistle before us. I'm going to talk a little bit about some back, some context for, um, for slavery. Uh, it's a bit of a topical slant. And then I'm going to definitely turn back to the text to make sure that we keep on track that we have what we had before us. But the 16 introduces us to a word which uh, we need to uh, engage with purely because of not only its, um, the way it is, uh, it, it, it obscures a meaning that should be very blatant in the scriptures, but also because of its misapplication in the lives we find today. And that word is the word bondservant. In verse 16, Paul says uh, about Onesimus, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, a beloved brother. Most English translators uh, or translations of the Bible regularly use the word bondservant to, to translate the Greek word which is doulos. Uh, Dr. John MacArthur sees this as more than just an oversight. In his book Slave, he calls this a cover-up. <laughs> yeah, Earth's a conspiracy, uh, unintentional probably, uh, certainly in some sense, but maybe in other areas, intentional. As people, writers, and our culture battles to, uh, to deal with the word slave because of a misunderstanding of how it is used historically and how it is certainly used scripturally. He writes again, and I quote him as he continues to write in the book Slave, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ. Dr. MacArthur writes this, and I quote, It wasn't until the spring of 2007, on an all-night flight to London while reading Slave of Christ by Murray J. Harris, that I realized there had been a centuries-long cover-up by English New Testament translators that obscured a precious, powerful, and clarifying revelation by the Holy Spirit. Undoubtedly, the cover-up was not intentional, at least not initially, yet its results have been dramatically serious. And so while John MacArthur concedes that the mistranslation may have been unintentional initially, its continued use by Bible translators may have been an effort to make an accommodation for the prevailing culture of the day. Writers, godly men, Men well-versed in the scriptures, men well-versed in translation and the science of translation has found a way of ameliorating the, the impact of the word slave because it does carry with it a certain connotation, uh, much of it misconstrued, but nonetheless a, a connotation. In fact, uh, on, the, on, 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 the, on the science of translating, uh, I, will, I will quote you from a secular read, uh, writer, who says this, I quote, Translation demands a deep understanding of both grammar and culture. Translators need to know the rules of a language as well as the habits of the people who speak it. And even for the most experienced professionals, confusion and frustration are familiar feelings. And part of the confusion of how to deal with the current culture and the frustration of not of being fearful of saying something of which they can be accused falsely uh, modern translators tend to uh, choose a word which they think is more acceptable in the current culture. And so instead of calling a doulos a slave, they call him a bondservant, a servant, for which there are words uh, that could have been translated in that way. Sensitivity of people's habits and culture and feelings have driven this convention to avoid using a word that has, come, that has become stigmatized in our 21st century culture. The word is slavery, and it has become a cultural four-letter word. 
So why has slavery become such a, a um, hated word in our present day? It wasn't always so. Uh, there's a misunderstanding that slavery immediately implies abuse of, of black people. It has a racial uh, uh, um, tone, which is more than just a, a overtone. It drives the thought of slavery. And so there's always this uh, uh, expectation. When you speak about slaves, you're speaking about uh, black people who have been abused under white masters. And the truth is, it wasn't always so. That's a, a, a comparatively modern uh, occurrence in the global historical practice of slavery. Slavery has existed for millennia in varying, for, in varying forms all over the world, affecting all races, all genders, and all, gay, all age groups, not just blacks today. And Black Lives Matter will have you believe that there's only one kind of slavery. It's the one that we see today uh, that's expressed um, based on the slavery of the South, which happened in the 1800s. And so they say that's the only kind of slavery, and it's abusive, uh, it's wrong, it has, it has caused the masters, who are predominantly and almost always in any case white, to be privileged. And so we must deal with this at every level, including in how we deal with it in church. It's only in the recent times that it has been globally outlawed. With the United Nations General Assembly adopting the Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, that specified that freedom from slavery is a universal human right and it is to be prohibited in all forms. Historically, there are many different types of slavery, including chattel, bonded, forced labor, and sexual slavery. The key characteristics of slavery, of all slavery, are the loss of freedom and movement and the loss of legal rights. But that does not make it necessarily a exclusively racial activity. In the ancient world, slavery developed for several reasons, including, amongst others, economic necessity. Uh, especially in civilizations that had agricultural economies, uh, a large workforce was needed, and very often they were slaves. In fact, in those economic um, cultures, uh, slaves lived better than free men who had to fight for their food every day. Slaves were fed, they were kept, they, they were looked after because they were the currency of the day. And so from the start of time, for millennia, slavery has been there and has not always been an abusive relationship, not the degree that we saw with the antebellum uh, slavery in the South. Also people became slaves because of war. War produced not only spoils such as gold, but also people to take as slaves, which eventually became a form of status symbol. The more slaves you had, the wealthier and more influential you were. There were no BMWs to drive. There was no iPhones to carry. There was no gold watches. Uh, slavery was part of your wealth, and the more slaves you had, the wealthier, wealthier you were. Abraham was known to be a man of great wealth because of his flocks, and his slaves. He had enough slaves uh, at his, uh, under his, under, in, his, in his household. He could make war with kings because of how many there were. Slaves formed a huge part of the, of the wealth of the ancient world. All societies have participated in slavery. This is not exclusive to the antebellum South in America. This is not exclusive to South Africa in the 1600s. Slavery has had its, uh, has had its roots in all societies. Slavery existed in every society, such as Mesopotamia. Possibly the place where Abram came from, it's very possible, that if Abram had come from Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldees, Mesopotamia, south, that he was used to slavery and had seen it. Um, Sumeria, Egypt, we all know the story of Egyptian slavery, uh, of, the, of the Hebrews. Ancient Greece, in ancient Greece, up to one-third of the population were slaves. Without slavery, the Greece couldn't function as a society. Uh, Rome replaced the dominant authority when they overpowered Greece. And when Rome was in power, at least 30% of the community were slaves. Another 30% were freed slaves. And so there came a time when the Romans thought it would be good 
to start marking those people worse because you couldn't tell a slave from a freedman from a Roman citizen because they looked the same, they dressed the same, they weren't in shackles and, 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 and filthy. The slaves moved amongst the Roman society as other people. They were known as slaves by those who knew them, but you couldn't tell from looking at them. And so the Roman community wanted to start marking people as freed people, so they could say that those are slaves and those are freed men or, or, or citizens. And then they realized if their slaves saw that they had numbered the Roman citizens, they'd be in trouble, so he abolished that idea. But slaves were the predominant uh, part of society in the Roman world. From the Dark Ages right up to the late 1700s, slavery existed in some form or another. In South Africa, slaves were part of the East, in, East Indian Company. Um, the Dutch East Indian Company uh, used, from, um, uh, used slaves as part of, their, of building the building their, um, empire, and they used them in trade, and they used them as, as pieces to barter and use them to work. And so uh, from the 1600s to 1800s, this country... Um, experienced slavery in a way which some are still trying to use today to um, manipulate things for themselves politically. Uh, in the mid-1800s, uh, slavery of the worst kind uh, showed, showed up in the South, uh, called antebellum um, slavery, uh, slavery that happened before the war that stopped slavery, uh, brought slave into slavery in the U.S., in the mid-1800s, the, the slavery of the worst kind was seen in 3.2 million blacks enslaved in the U.S. That certainly was a horrendous time. And it would be wrong to just say it didn't exist. We cannot deny that as much as we cannot deny the Holocaust. But the point is that it was not the only form of slavery. In fact, at that same time, from the 1500s to the 1900s, 1.5 million Europeans, people from Europe, white-skinned, fair-skinned, blue-eyed people, including Britons, were enslaved by the Ottomans. And here we find a race that wasn't considered white who enslaved millions of white slaves. Slavery does not uh, decide what color it wants to be. From every race, every nation, every color, slavery has existed. Modern slavery. Slavery does exist today. There's no slavery in America, no matter what you hear them say. If they are slaves, they're living good. Uh, though they claim to be slaves still under slavery and under, a, under the, the, uh, the, the disadvantages of slavery. But modern slavery still exists. Slavery has evolved and disappeared into the shadows of people. Smuggling is still very much a lucrative trade well into the 21st century, with the majority of victims being women involved in sex trafficking. It is estimated there are currently 40 million victims of slavery today. Not 100 years ago, today, there's an estimation of 40 million victims of slavery in various countries, in the East, in the Far East, uh, in Africa, up North. There are millions of people still living in slavery today. It may be called a different thing, it may be seems to be different, but they are enslaved. They've lost all rights to freedom, They've lost all rights to the law. I don't know what BLM is doing about them. Really. If they really want to make a change to slavery, there's a world that's open for them to bring about change if they want to. So you may think that, well, if we only work hard at this, perhaps we'll bring slavery to an end. Maybe if we just put our heads together, uh, become good social justice warriors, do what's good for mankind, uh, eradicate poverty, and somehow we'll kill slavery in our generation. Turn to Revelation, please. Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18 is a time of the future. It's a time that uh, God has, is busy judging the world. It's a time when all those who have turned their back against God as people, as individuals, as nations, as powers, as dynasties are being judged. Very shortly, when we get to chapter 20, we're going to see a, uh, the entrance of a thousand-year reign of Christ as he reigns as, as king, son of David, on the throne, as he brings about brilliant and wonderful uh, changes to his world. But just before then, verse 18, and we will pick up at verse, uh, chapter 18, we pick up at verse 11, it says this. Listen to what it says in chapter 18 of Revelation. In a future day, very close 
to the time when things are going to be wrapped up. Verse 11 says this, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. This is the destruction of Babylon, which would be um, a worldwide government, a worldwide force who's controlling control of everything. Um, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys a cargo anymore. Commerce is coming to an end. The way of trading is coming to an end. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented hood, all kinds of articles in ivory, all kinds of articles of costly hood, bronze, iron and marble. They're going to stop trading in those things. There will be no more time. They will no longer be able to trade in those things. Cinnamon, verse 13, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. Right up to the very end, slavery will permeate civilization. It doesn't come to an end because slavery is, at the surface, an outcome of the wickedness of the heart of man. Men oppress men because men are evil. Our hearts are evil. We are darkened from birth and unless God changes us, unless God takes us from out of that slavery of sin, we remain sinful, we remain slaves to our own desires, and we force others to be part of that so we can get our desires. So up to the very end, slavery uh, remains. And notice that as far as the Bible is concerned, in Revelation here, and else we will quote later on, the Bible condemns the trading in human life. While the Bible, we will see, controls and regulates slavery, it never supports trading in human life. It condemns trading in human souls. And so, that is a brief uh, uh, run-through of slavery in the history of the human experience, humanity. But slavery um, doesn't only exist there. Slavery is prominent in the Old and New Testaments. The subject cannot be fully covered this morning. We only have time for a very few glimpses. But I need to bring you to understand that slavery uh, isn't always, and in every sense, a bad thing. I was going to formally start this sermon by saying slavery is a good thing, and then see how many of you had apoplexy and found your seats. Uh, I would have qualified it by, by contextualizing it, but I, I think I'll do it in a different way. Nonetheless, slavery does appear in both the Old and New Testaments. Many believe that slavery has survived and become entrenched in society because of the Bible. They read the Bible for slavery. They say, well, the Bible supports slavery. That word is a, it's a loaded word. It's a, it's a, it's a word that's charged with, uh, with, uh, with ignorance. The Bible doesn't support slavery. The Bible regulates slavery because the Lord knows the hearts of men. He also knows that both the slave and the master are equally sinful. And so he controls and regulates through various laws in the scriptures. But the Bible outwardly and openly condemns the trading of human lives. Western slave traders used the Bible to validate the practice of treating human beings as chattel. The practice appeared to be, to be legitimized by men like John Newton. Once upon a time, John Newton was a slave trader. God changed him. God turned him over and God freed him from not only being a slave to sin, but being a slave trader of human beings. And John Newton, who once was a pillar of the slave trading community, became a abolitionist and a godly pastor. And yet, the Bible has never condoned the trading of men and women as slaves, but it did regulate the way slave owners treat their slaves in both Old and New Testaments. Slavery was part and parcel of the commercial world in all ages, and the Bible recognizes that. And God included that, this institution of slavery, in his plan of redemption. This is something we need to grasp as believers, as Christians, as though as people call ourselves uh, Bible-believing Christians. We must never see slavery as something that got out of hand and that slipped through God's fingers. We serve a sovereign God. And even things that appear evil and bad and abusive to the human mind, especially when humans turn it into bad, abusive things, is never out of God's plan. And God's plan of redemption will never be thwarted. The Old Testament. The most famous account of slavery in the Old Testament is, of course, the story of Israel. A nation birthed under slavery. We know the story. 
about a family of 70 people uh, leave a, 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 their home because of a worldwide famine, um, and they end up in Egypt because uh, one of the sons had formerly been slow, sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, and is now prime minister of Egypt, responsible for feeding the entire world if they come to him for food. And that's Joseph. 400 years later, about 400 years later, that same people who entered Egypt at 70 has birthed into a nation of some 2 million people. And they're living as slaves in Egypt under the bondage of a pharaoh who did not know Joseph. This was slavery at its worst. The taskmasters were cruel. The consequence of pushback was severe. And protests incurred either uh, increased labor at the least or death at the worst. This was God's chosen people. And they were slaves. A nation born as slaves. The Exodus becomes the most famous, most epic, and most successful record of slaves breaking the shackles of their slave master. This is the most successful account of slaves being manumitted, of being freed, as God takes his people out of Egypt. But God had freed the Israelites from bondage to Egypt so, they, so that they could be taken into a more significant form of slavery. Leviticus chapter 25 Verse 55, and I'm quoting from the, uh, the Holman Christian Study Bible. For the Israelites, says God, are my slaves. They are my slaves that are brought out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. So they were slaves in Egypt under an oppressive uh, taskmaster. Uh, and God saves them out of slavery into slavery. And that is the story of redemption whether it's Old Testament or New. To call oneself an Israelite was the same as calling oneself a slave of God. But stories of slavery are found elsewhere in the Old Testament, and some of these accounts help us to understand that not all slaves were subject to abuse. I'm not going to turn there right now, but I'll, I'll refer to Genesis chapter, one, chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. Abraham, so-called Abraham, no son yet, and God makes a, is making a covenant with Abraham. God promises Abraham he's going to have a descendants who can be numbered like the, he can number the stars in the sky. He's going to have millions of descendants. And Abraham says, how can this be? I don't even have a son. He says, uh, you've given me no children, so my household will be, my, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Uh, the ESV is very bad here. The ESV says, a member of my household. Kind of making it sound like this was just um, a family member who was living with him. It wasn't. The NIV tries to make it better by calling the, this man a servant, this Eliezer of Damascus. In fact, the RSV of all versions gets it spot on. It says in there, And Abram said, Behold, thou hast given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. The point is, here's a man who's a slave, born in Abraham's house to a slave mother, and he, if Abraham had no heirs, would inherit all of Abraham's wealth. So not all slaves got a bad deal. And many slaves benefited from the masters they were attached to. In fact, the more renowned, the more prominent, uh, the more uh, famous your master was, the slaves were live, lifted up in their own uh, strata, as being renowned, famous, and honored. So the slave took his identity from that of his master. And if his master was rich, very often they would benefit from being part of their family. So God uh, places slaves in different situations. God also provided protection for slaves in several ways. In fact, it says in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, Anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So from whether it's Exodus chapter 21 or Revelation chapter 18, we see that God has condemned the trading in human life. This verse alone makes it very clear that slavery in the Old Testament law is vastly different from the general perception that the Bible, of people that the Bible encourages slave trading today. The Bible does not encourage slave trading. It only regulates it. So how did slavery come about in, in the Old Testament Israel? How, if they weren't allowed to buy and sell slaves, uh, how were they able to attain slaves? 
In almost every instance, the kind of slavery governed by the Old Testament law was debt slavery. Now, there were times when some nations were conquered and some would be taken into certain households, but even then, even though a slave would be taken from a, from a Gentile foreign nation, the Jews were regulated how they had to deal with those slaves. And God had clearly spelled it that they could not be abused as chattel, as, as animals in the household in which they had been attached. In the Old Testament slaves were most often debt, uh, debt slaves. These were individuals who could uh, offer their labor in exchange for an outstanding debt that they could not pay. The laws that govern such transactions were given to protect the rights of such slaves who could only serve for a maximum of six years. And year seven, the master had to set them free. Whether the debt was paid or not, very often the debt was paid before the time they would go free when the debt was paid within six years, but at the seventh year, they had to be set free. And the master couldn't just take them and kick them out on the road. He had to send them away with something to set up, them, set them up themselves in a new home. And if it was the Jubilee year, all slaves were set free, no matter where they were in the period of slavery. God protected slaves, and he made others see that they too were created in the image of God. So what about slavery in the New Testament? The situation with New Testament slavery uh, is significantly different than we find in the Old. It's not hard to see why. The Old Testament law was given by God to govern his people Israel, And it expresses the moral will of God for a specific people, a specific time, and for a specific purpose. The New Testament, by way of contrast, speaks to God's people, the church, as subjects living within an already existing political entity, the Roman Empire, whose laws and norms were the result of human political philosophy. So whereas Israel lived under laws given by God specifically for them, the Church of Jesus Christ is birthed into an already existing economy, a political entity where laws and norms are already there. And one of the laws and norms, or some of the laws and norms, was, was there to govern and allow for and, 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 um, and extend the, the institution of slavery. In the New Testament, God is not at work establishing a political entity, but is rather redeeming a people to himself called out from every nation. Accordingly, God gives his people instructions on how to live in an already existing social structure. Slavery is there by the time the church is birthed. And God says, this is how you live as a believer, as a child of God within the society. Jesus included slaves in his parable. We don't say Jesus is condemning slavery. He actually uses slaves in his parables. The New Testament writers include the regulation of slavery in the list of Christian conduct. Slaves were included in the local churches in every place. There were slaves and slave masters who fellowshiped in exactly the same church, and they remained slaves and slave masters. And while they were in church, the brothers, when they went out, the slaves served their masters. So, the next thing I'm going to talk about is the significant blessing of slavery. You say, that sounds wrong. That's an oxymoron. The significant blessing of slavery. Slavery, when it's clearly understood biblically, makes the blessing of slavery absolutely clear. In what way was the institution of slavery beneficial? Or, maybe we can state it in another way. Why did God not remove slavery from the human experience? And I want to propose to you that Probably the main reason, in my understanding, why God left slavery as an embedded institution in the human experience from time immemorial right to the end is that slavery and the freedom from slavery is a brilliant, explicit picture of the divine act of redemption. It's clearly depicted in the, in the, in the scriptures. As much as slavery is abhorrent to the modern secular mind, it was used by God as a way of bringing an understanding of redemption to the human mind. God has very often left for us in our experiences practical, natural things that when we see how it works in our lives in a natural way, when it gets applied to the scriptures and we are trying to understand a spiritual truth, it becomes clear. For instance, marriage. Marriage is an institution that is natural to all men. We've been marrying since... Uh, Adam saw Eve and lacked lyrical, oh, lyrical, um, 
became poetic about Eve, this beautiful woman who stood before him. And from that marriage till today, marriage is a, a human institution. And yet, it's only a small picture of a far more significant thing. That of the relationship between ch- the Christ and the church. We understand the relationship between Christ and the church better we understand how marriages work in the human experience. Death. Death is a very natural thing. Uh, we all die. Uh, we all will pass that portal of death except those who will be raptured very soon. Uh, you should always say, Maranatha, Maranatha, come Lord, uh, maybe before the day is ended. But unless you go through the rapture, uh, all of us in this room are going to die at some point in time. And yet, death, which is a natural thing and a common to all people, really is a, 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 a picture of something more significant spiritually, that men are dead in sin and they are unable to uh, have a relationship with God. They can do nothing for themselves. They are um, dead uh, as any other corpse is. And spiritually, they have no ability to choose God. And so these uh, human experiences help us understand more significantly what the spiritual uh, teaching is. And so with slavery. We see slavery as the horrible thing that it is, where people are kept bound without any rights under a taskmaster who makes demands of them that is... um, uh, that impacts on their lives in a seriously negative way, and they can't break it, and they can't get out of it, and they die as slaves unless one or two masters may have released them from that. But generally speaking, they were born into slavery, so many of them, and they were died as slaves, and their entire lives was under this domination of something, the dominion of an institution that, uh, that was abusive and horrible. So in a similar way, the common practice of slavery amongst mankind brings about an understanding of a far more significant aspect of spiritual slavery in two forms. Number one, the innate slavery into which all human beings are born, namely being slaves of sin. John chapter 8 verse 34, the Lord says this, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You may be as free as you think you are, free as a bird, you may, have, you may think you have your destiny in your own hands. You may think that you make decisions for yourself, but you're a slave. Every one of us is born into slavery. We are born into sin, and therefore we are born as slaves to sin. But in the second way, this blessed slavery into which believers are brought by way of, of the new birth is also understood when we understand what slavery is like. And so those who are born in sin... Uh, are brought into a new form of slavery, they become slaves of righteousness. And so slavery not only makes us understand how under the dominion of Satan uh, we are bound and we suffer, but when we are saved from that slavery and translated into a different kind of slavery, that which is a slave of righteousness, everything changes. This is exactly what is the picture, the picture that we see with the Hebrew nation. They were saved from the slavery and dominion of Egypt and they made slaves of God who made them a people of, of his own. Most people do not see that every person is a slave to one master or another. If you are unsaved, you are still serving Satan as your master. You are a slave to sin. And you cannot break that, that, that bond unless God empowers you to do that. You have no power, no strength, uh, no means to remove from your shoulders your, the shackles of sin that bind you to Satan and bind you as a slave of sin. Only God, through Jesus Christ, is able to free you from that. Most people do not see that every person is a slave to one master or another. All mankind is born into slavery by the fact that they are born in sin and under the dominion of Satan. Unbelievers are slaves of sin. As slaves, they are powerless to escape. And this is clearly seen in the doctrine of total depravity. That's what total depravity tells you. You are unable to free yourself from slavery. Though we were all once like that, slaves of sin, God pursued us, drawing us to himself by his irresistible grace and chose in his infinite mercy to save those on whom he has set his love in eternity past. That's the doctrine of election. And again, slavery helps us to understand that. He enslaved us to himself as an action of pure, unconditional love. But human slavery is not only a state. It's, it's also, it also an, 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 is an analogy of a divine transaction. 
In Roman times, the transactions of slavery took place in the Roman market. That's where slaves were bought and sold. Prospective buyers would come into the marketplace, pay the agreed price for the slaves they had chosen, remove them from their place to be used as a newcomer chose. The Roman slave was never free. All that took place was it was a change of ownership. The slave trader, who was his de facto owner for a time, sold that slave to another uh, person who became that slave's owner from that point onwards. This very process of being of a transaction in the slave market, where a slave is taken from one owner to another, this very process is an outstanding analogy of divine redemption. Unbelievers are under the dominion of Satan and sin and need a change of spiritual ownership. A change of ownership is required to free them from slavery that leads to damnation and transfer them into slavery that brings blessings, both now and in the future. There is a blessing in slavery. If you understand exactly how God has used slavery to conscientize us of what he can do for those whom he calls, and if you see that being a slave to a good master is a good thing, then you will have no misconception of slavery. Romans chapter 6 verse 16 says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. The only way to escape the slavery of sin is to be made slaves of righteousness. And this again is affecting the life of the slaves who were sold in the Roman market, where they were changed from one owner to another, so you and I can only be changed into a slave of righteousness when our ownership is changed, and God alone can make that happen. Under Roman domin- domination, dominion, no slave chose a master. Rather, masters chose his slaves. In the slave market, slaves were entirely subject to the decision of potential buyers. The slave's future, his well-being, his mode of service, his very life was at the behest of his master. In a similar way, God has purchased his chosen slaves with Christ's own blood. Acts chapter 20 verse 28. The business transaction of the Roman market is a reflection of the doctrine of particular redemption. God chose his own and he paid for them for their freedom from sin with the blood of Jesus Christ. In order to bring about a change of ownership in the person that God has chosen, a price had to be paid. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. But this divinely motivated transaction does not stop at simply paying the price. It means, it means much more. It includes the idea of acquiring or obtaining ownership. The sin is brought into the marketplace and then is removed from the marketplace. No Roman owner bought a slave in the market and left him there. He took him out of the market to serve a purpose. This is analogous of God using the purchasing power of the blood of Jesus Christ buying those he has chosen in the marketplace and then taking them out of the marketplace. Redemption is the activity of God whereby the elect are bought in the marketplace, bought as sinners amidst the sinful uh, uh, um, environment. They are bought in the marketplace, they are removed out of the marketplace and they are set free from or, re- or released from the condemnation that belonged to their former life. True freedom is bondage to Jesus Christ. True freedom is slavery to God. The glorious work of redemption is brought out magnificently when Paul writes to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. That word redemption is the idea of buying and setting free, of releasing from something of which, of which had dominion over you, the forgiveness of sins. When God rescued unbelievers from sin, he makes them his own slaves. Romans chapter 6 tells us very clearly, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you, you get leads to sanctification and it ends eternal life. So, God rescued unbelievers and he makes them his own slaves. 
He makes him his friends, John chapter 15, and he adopts him into his family as sons and daughters. There's a blessing in slavery. Slavery is a good thing as long as it sits and resides in the hands of God and he carries it out the way he intends it to be carried out. So, bring us all back to Philemon. Back to Philemon, verse 17. Paul is going to reinforce his appeal in verse 17 to Philemon. And this is now uh, Paul speaking to Philemon, having said there's a slave coming back. Uh, having said that, forget about the way that the Greeks and Romans dealt with slaves. Uh, this man's coming back to you as a brother. And so we are brought through the understanding that a slave has been saved, a slave has been changed from a, ch- from, from a, a slave to sin to a slave of righteousness, a man has been taken from, and transformed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and this slave is coming home. And Philemon's got to do something with him. And so we see when we get to verse 17, uh, Paul says this, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would, Receiving him as you receive me. What's happening right here is Paul has already made an appeal to Philemon from verse 10 down to verse 16. And Paul is now going to reinforce that appeal by restating it in a very specific way. I'll go this very quickly. Verse 17, he restates his request more directly. He says this, if you consider me a partner, receive him as you receive me. He's made it clear, this is what I want you to do. Receive Onesimus back. He restates his appeal in a more direct way. Verses 8 to 19, he then amplifies his appeal. He says, if he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge it to my account. And Paul says, don't hold whatever is done to his account, I'll pay for it. This is actually a beautiful picture of substitution. Paul says, he owes you something, he can't pay it, I'll pay it on his behalf. So when you receive him, you receive him as though you're receiving me. A beautiful picture of, of, of substitution. Um, perhaps a sermon for another day. Uh, Paul says in verse, in verse 20, um, he makes an appeal to his emotions, so he has restated his appeal. He makes it more directly. He amplifies it, and now he hones in and says to uh, Philemon in verse 20, Yes, brother, I want, some benefit from, from, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So Paul is now driving to Philemon's emotion and saying, the appeal I'm making is very serious. I'm reinforcing it by restating it, by amplifying it, by appealing to your emotions. And then he says, I'm confident that you will do this. And the confidence is, is expressed in verse 21 and 22. Confident in your obedience, I write you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Now, I'm going to briefly touch on whether Paul's asking for Philemon to be freed. That we will see very quickly and very briefly. However, he does say, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me that I'm, I'm, that I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. So Paul now shows the confidence he has in Philemon to do the right thing. He has, he has mentored him into his position. He has engaged with him on a level of a father, a pastor, a mentor. And he knows that Philemon knows he must do the right thing. And so as Paul wraps up this uh, this appeal, he does so with a force that is hard for Philemon to miss. So, in conclusion, uh, really, we come to the end of this epistle, and um, it is the part that feeds my, my title, a, a level alliance. Philemon and Onesimus is left by the Apostle Paul on a level footing, and uh, there is many who believe that what the Apostle Paul says um, in verse 21, knowing that you will do the more than I say, is a hint, is an encouragement to free Onesimus. We don't know that's true. Some say it is. Some say it's not. We know that Paul um, is comfortable with slaves and masters being in the same church. Colossians, he does that. He speaks to uh, the leaders in the church. He speaks to fathers and mothers. And then he speaks to slaves in the church and he speaks to masters in the church. At the end of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4 in Colossians, he speaks about both within the church. He doesn't say to them, stop being a slave and master set your slaves free. He, he speaks to them as though that will continue. On the other hand, Paul does encourage slaves to get freedom if they can. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says this, Where you are a bondservant when called, do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, 
avail yourself of the opportunity. Of the opportunity. It appears from Paul's emphasis on the changed status of Onesimus, no more a slave but a dear brother, that this was a soft encouragement for Philemon to take the initiative. Paul hasn't forced Philemon to take Onesimus back. He's encouraged him. Paul doesn't force Philemon to free Onesimus. It appears he may be encouraging him. And perhaps loving Onesimus as a dear brother would make it hard for Philemon to keep him as a slave and he may manumit him. An interesting side note in closing. The one way that Philemon could make Onesimus free was to adopt him as a son. And there was a process within the Roman custom that that could happen. It was a specific uh, legal process. Uh, it required that a, that a person be changed from one status to another. And so a Roman could see a, 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 a person who was not his own and adopt him as a son into the family and give him all the privileges of the family. And perhaps this is what Paul had in mind. We don't know. Paul's not explicit. The language is, is, is very broad. But it's a possibility. And if Philemon had done this, this was one way. How was this done? There was a termination of the adopted child's social relationship. Philemon could easily do this for Onesimus, make him no longer a slave. He belonged to Philemon, so Philemon could do with his, his social status as he pleased. Number two, he could make him a permanent member of the new family. Again, it was in Philemon's power to do this and make him more than a brother. So both of those requirements in the Roman law was available to Philemon to make Onesimus a freed man and part of his family. Number three, the person who is adopting a son had to, ob- had to eradicate any financial obligation. Paul already offered to do that if it was there. So again, there was no hindrance to Philemon making Onesimus a son if this was what he was encouraged to do. Uh, Paul had removed any, uh, uh, any uh, doubt about payment of debt if there was a debt. So that would be removed. So therefore, Paul's IOU drew Philemon closer to this possibility. The last thing in this transaction required that the person who is taken into the family, the one who is being adopted, had to have the witness of seven reputable men so that he could be acknowledged as being worthy of being adopted. And if the father who adopted the son died, they could stand up and vouch for him. Your question may be, well, if that was the case, where's Onesimus, who was a useless slave, possibly a lazy slave, certainly a runaway slave, where's he going to find seven men to vouch for his integrity? Well, we know the Apostle Paul is one, right? Apostle Paul said he's more precious than me. Verse 23, he was, Onesimus was in prison uh, with Paul for a short while. He meets Epaphras there, and Epaphras comes to know Onesimus in a very Sincere way, number two. As does Mark, number three. Aristarchus, number four. Demas, number five. So Paul is number one. And then Epaphras, uh, uh, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. We have six people who already are able to vouch for Onesimus as being an honorable man since he's been saved by Jesus Christ. But he needs a seventh man. And he is a seventh man. Go to Colossians, please. I know that I am exercising a little bit of sanctified speculation, but somebody did last week, so I'm taking his lead. (laughs) Colossians chapter 4. And go to verse 7. Colossians is a letter being delivered to the Colossian church, at the same time as the letter of Philemon has been delivered to Philemon. And verse 7, Paul says this, of chapter 4, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. And so you are seven men who could very well vouch for Onesimus' integrity, should Philemon decide to go this way. Now, I've said to you up front, this is speculation. It's not crazy because this was a package in Rome, but I think that uh, it's a viable proposition. And so we come to the end of this epistle. I brought it to the end, I know, in an extremely quick fashion. 
Uh, I didn't want to leave um, the salutation to a sermon on its own, but I think we've come to see this morning one very clear thing, that the slavery that was depicting the life of Onesimus is typical of the slavery into which you and I have been born as sinners, but it's also a picture of if he was freed as other slaves are freed, that we've been freed from the slavery of sin to slavery of righteousness, thereby becoming slaves of Christ, and thereby being required, being instructed to live as Slaves of Christ. How much have we embraced our slavery to Christ is the application to ourselves this morning, the implication to ourselves. How have we embraced the slavery to Christ into which we have been placed and do we actively live as slaves of righteousness? In closing, I will read Paul's benediction that he gives to Philemon as he sends a letter to him and to others and his benediction in verse 25 is to Philemon, to his family, and to the church at Colossae. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful letter and the lessons we learn. We thank you for the glorious truths that has been penned by the leading of your Holy Spirit, by the inspiration of your spirit, that we today can take up these words, these truths, and see our lives being changed daily as it becomes a real in our lives. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.